Hi, I'm Gordon Lamp here with The Real Finds Podcast, the podcast series where we interview key entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists, shaping the real estate industry and as a result, our world. Corinne is founder of Agate, an experienced consultancy that helps companies navigate the future of work. On the podcast, we discuss the future of work, workplace culture, and the biggest challenges and opportunities in the physical workplace moving forward. She walks us through how we can measure successful workplaces, advice for starting the transformation, and how a people-centric perspective is the path forward. It's well worth a listen. Corinne, thank you for hopping on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So before we start, uh, could you introduce yourself to our guests? Sure. Uh, So I'm Corinne Murray. I'm based in Brooklyn, New York. I've been in and around the real estate world my entire career. Got CBRE, Gensler, WeWork, a big landlord here in New York City, among a few others. Uh, And now I have my own consulting company that helps helps organizations figure out what does the future of work as we understand it today mean for them? And how do they, even before they touch anything that is real estate, how do they transform the ways that their people work and how the work gets done? Well, Corinne... um... There's been a, a lot, that's a lot of names right there. A lot of big yeah. names in real estate. <laughs> but the biggest thing getting thrown around in real estate is the future of work. So um, yes. I think what's important to start off is talk about why workplace culture and workplace strategy matters for the future of work, because that seems to be a real focus of uh, what you consult yeah. on. Sure. So future of work is definitely something that's uh, a very big topic that I think <laughs> A lot of folks are still trying to figure out what it actually means. And I think even in our own industry, there's uh, a little bit of confusion around the fact that future of work means different things to different industries. It's a very, you know, it hits every industry, not just ours. Uh, And so figuring out how all of our perspectives around future of work mesh is the real critical piece that's yet to really happen. Everyone's got their, you know, disparate opinions. what it means for us and for workplace is really setting up teams to do their best work. And a lot of why I position myself as helping companies go through the transformations needed before even talking about workplace is partly through experience of I've done plenty of change management and workplace strategy projects where there hasn't been that organizational change that there hasn't been this, big mental shift of how work and where work gets done that's accomplished first before we start changing up an environment to say, here's activity-based working and it lets you do X, Y, and Z, but none of the teams and none of the managers are trained up on what that means. So there's a big, there's still a lot of opportunity to close the gap between uh, the just how we create spaces and what those spaces mean and educating the people who use those spaces on what they're for, why they're important, and how they can create autonomy for themselves on how they use them. So space is certainly important and how it's used is is critical. Absolutely. But I think what's critical too to talk about is the current landscape before we get into talking about the future. And so um, I know we're talking about this in May, podcast will probably go out near the end of May or early June. 
But as now that we speak, I just recently saw on real estate Twitter right before this interview that the current like true occupancy rate in some studies is around 50% right now, give or take, you know, give or take how you assess that. And I'm curious yeah. how you see that landscape playing out right now. I think so 50% is the highest number I've heard, uh, you know, in a while. So it is interesting. I would want to see. I'm, of course, you know, I'm of course. Enough yeah, of yeah, yeah. Nerd. yeah, no, no. Yeah. I'm enough of a data nerd that like, I want to, you know, I want to <laughs> pop the hood and see exactly where that 50% is coming Likewise, from. Likewise, yeah. Uh, because, you know, numbers out of context can tell a very different story than when it's, you know, when you have all the different dressings on it to be like, okay, it's 50% on a Wednesday. And, you know, giving all those circumstances are more critical than ever because we have peak days and we have off days and, you know, everyone, whether they're in real estate or not, knows what that is. You know, Mondays and Fridays are the light days. Tuesdays and Wednesdays tend to be the heaviest. And even Thursday, there's there's tapering off. Um, and part again, sort of part of why I focus on the org transformation side of things is hybrid is a it's a half-baked idea still it's i'm a proponent of flexibility and so therefore i you know i'm all for what hybrid is about but so far hybrid has only solved for the geography of where get where work gets done so that means executives have decided tuesday through thursday we want you in the office but where the friction is still coming in and why even with that 50 percent number um there are still a lot of people that get frustrated when they come into the office with the, under the guise of I'm here to be with people. I'm here to spend time with my team. And yet I'm in back-to-back -back zoom meetings. And so what's the point? And that's the, that's the really big crystal ball question that we've got to figure out over the next, you know, six to nine months of what's next, because we've figured out, okay, this is the, these are the migration patterns of the post-COVID work world, at least, you know, where we are today, always subject to change. But we've yet to figure out what kind of work do we plan for those Tuesday, Wednesdays, Thursdays. Obviously, there are always going to be Zoom meetings that creep in and all that kind of stuff. But we need to uh, we need we need to segment the kinds of work that we do for certain kinds of days to really just get this, the biggest return on investment for wherever we are. And, you know, this is why the built environment and why workplaces still matter so much is being together with employees is really the first step to achieving productivity. You need people to have, you know, maybe not, you know, deep relationships with tons of vulnerability. I don't think that's necessarily the gold star. You need people who know how to, you know, be amongst people that they might disagree with or have different objectives with, but still figure out how to get stuff done. That's really the gold star for productivity. And that's where the workplace plays a huge role. And the way that we're doing hybrid today does not set the workplace up for success. So what do you think are the biggest challenges to get to that success point? Because um, certainly we're not doing things right right now, right? Um, there's there's right. massive confusion in the space for both landlords yes. and occupiers. So how do you see yes. us getting to a place where we can have a successful workplace culture? 
Yeah. Oh, I think that's the right question. I think also no one's ever, we, there was no, sh no chance we were going to get this right on the first. <laughs> of go. course. Yeah. So it's like, you know, <laughs> so, but it's funny because, you know, the media is still very, you know, it's still very binary of, oh, this, this failed. So we just got to go back to what we know. We're in, we're going to be in a test bed of what works for at least the next five to seven years. And that's a good, that's a good problem to have. Um, I think the next couple of steps required are, I mean, my wish list is we need more practical data around how we measure productivity because we're using the same metrics that Henry Ford did for a factory floor in the, in the 1910s. So we need, we need to update that and figure out how does productivity actually get measured for information and knowledge workers? Um, because, you know, creating a deck is not the same thing as hitting a nail in the same spot on a different car over and yeah. over again. So we need to, that's my wish list. Uh, I think the more practical standpoint is companies need to do a better job of thinking, thinking about and creating programs and systems around what are the things that people just can't get at home that they need here. And right now the conversation has been very based in, hospitality like oh we're going to give you free lunch and you know if you're facebook we're going to have lizzo perform and you know all these different things that are nice to have they're fun you know offshoot kind of things but none of them actually contribute to the accomplishment of work and i think that's the i think that's the pivot that helps us make progress without stepping on toes of what people prefer. I think we've gotten to, when we think about employee experience and workplace experience, we've spent too much time thinking about what people like rather than what people need. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, what people need is far more unifying. Like we all need access to Wi-Fi. We all need access to power. We all need good wayfinding. We need ways that we can, you know, I'm speaking very much on the built environment at the moment, but there's a lot of things around that, those personal interactions, like I was talking about, how, how can a company facilitate the, the redevelopment of weak ties? So strong ties, weak ties research was done back in the seventies and the weak tie relationships are actually the most crucial for bit for business. You don't need to be best friends or, you know, have everyone who you work with be your be all end all, but you need to be able to get work done with all these different folks. So that really should be the North Star for how teams approach uh, hybrid going forward is what can we do that changes, that moves the needle on building weak ties. And it's not hosting, it's not always hosting a happy hour. It could be hosting lunch and learns on very niche topics. It could be, you know, developing a mentorship program. It could be you know, just scheduling all your company events on a particular day and saying, this is just a company day. It's a learning day and it's a company day. We're going to give you business updates. And then, you know, we're going to serve you lunch and you just get to spend time with one another. So it's a lot more people driven than it is space and hospitality driven, which is uncharted territory for folks in our industry. And it's hard to figure out where we can fit in, but being able to diagnose this is not a space problem or this is not a hospitality or an, or an employee experience program. 
that's do that's doing good service for your clients. Just because you can't do it, facilitating a, a like the arrival at a solution is better than anything that they can expect. So it's figuring out how the chips are falling because pre-pandemic, everything kind of just got bucketed into, oh, it's happening in the workplace. That's a real estate and a workplace problem rather than it being an operational uh, operational problem or an HR problem, an IT problem. How do you think you best can diagnose and measure uh, a people-centric perspective and kind of really diagnose that there is a, a people problem versus kind of a, yeah. a spatial or an operational issue? Um, I think a lot of the methods are the same. It's really doing discovery work and not only looking at space utilization data or, you know, facilities ticketing data, things like, or, you know, booking yeah. data. Those are useful, but right now, right now, especially, and just in general, I'm a very, I'm a very qualitative data leaning person. And I like for quantitative to, to sort of bolster and inform the, you know, the insights that I'm getting from people on the ground. And a lot of companies tend to do the opposite and they look at the quant first because it's faster and it's easier. And usually there's a dashboard there (laughs) that will show you everything. But you're not going to get you're not going to really get to the root cause unless you're talking to people, um, you know, util- just to use utilization as an example. You might see that, you know, your meeting room on the southwestern corner is never getting used. And so you think, well, let's turn it into something else. But then that's not getting used either because the space type isn't the problem. It's the fact that it's the southwest corner and it's hot anytime after, you know, 11 a.m. or something like that. So, you know, it, it, there needs to be a balancing of go to the people first and then look for the data validation, the quant validation. And quant doesn't tell the stories the way that people do and experience does. So I think that's really the, that's the first thing that people should be doing is don't be afraid to talk to your people. Um, and don't be afraid to talk to your people and set up a system that says, we want to hear from you. And here's the, here's the cycle of you tell us something, we internalize it, we figure out how, if we can or how we can solution it. And then this is how we play it back to you to make sure that you understand, not only are we listening, we're trying to action what you're telling us. Because many, many employees have felt the, the burn of, sharing all these insights, but then (laughs) not knowing where they go. And then they kind of just evaporate into the void. So it's really, really crucial to create that system of listening, digesting and actioning. Uh, And then just that's, that's the rinse, repeat qualitative cycle. And what's great about that is the more you listen to your people and validate what they're saying, I'm not saying, you know, go, grab their Christmas list and and just start fixing whatever they say, obviously validate and make sure that what you're doing makes sense both for the business and for everyone else. Um, But it takes pressure off of operational teams. If you're listening to people in a, on a pretty consistent basis, you're also creating, you're developing a co-creative relationship. So it's not you're building something for them, you're building something with them. And so 
the onus is not only on you if something goes bad and the the win everyone gets to benefit from that win so there's a lot of benefit both from a risk perspective and from a morale and and culture and employee experience level of bringing them into the conversation can you give us an example of designing like a positive employee experience and i know i know you probably have to be private in some regards but I'm just curious how that would be implemented in today's workforce. Sure. I mean, the good thing with employee experience is it's everywhere. Employee experience is quite literally every single touch point from a physical, digital, relational standpoint that an employee faces when they're at any company. It really starts from the moment they're looking for a job and they find your job posting to the day they hand in their badge and their laptop. So there's a million different places where employee experience comes in for our purposes in workplace and real estate. It's as it can be really good wayfinding because if you're new to a company and you can't tell which way, you know, which way the meeting room is and you're late by 15 minutes, that's bad employee experience. Uh, The same could be said for, you know, companies only having one nursing room for for moms coming back from maternity leave or, you know, birthing parents coming back from maternity leave. So, you know, all these little things, experience is a lot of really tiny things all sort of snowballed into one. So there's a lot of different ways that you can interpret it. Uh, obviously, the ones that everyone is familiar with are the parties and the food and beverage programs and yoga and all these kinds of things, all of which are nice. But what I, part of what I feel is a bit of my mission is to prove and to really reinforce that employee experience isn't just the shiny, very Instagrammable stuff. Good employee experience is making sure they've got good equipment that works Uh, They have a good team with, you know, where they have a good feedback loop to make sure that the work that they're doing is really, uh, is really effective and having spaces that actually let them get their work done. So whether that's creating a quiet space where anyone from across the organization can go and not be disturbed to having, you know, a million whiteboards, because sometimes that's just what's needed. All of those things snowball into uh, constructive and healthy employee experience. So, um, one of the things that I'm curious about, since we've been implementing, um, some employee experiential, uh, programs, both on a landlord Mm -hmm. and on an occupier, uh, side, uh, for some of my clients is what's the best advice you can give for someone starting the transition, uh, into a kind of a better, uh, employee experiential, uh, workspace. Is there a couple keynotes that are a good way to start, or is it just a very holistic approach? That's a good question. Um, I would say, so it's it's different answers for landlords and occupiers. Uh, landlords, it's it, landlords, it's just it's challenging right now, and part of it <laughs> yeah. why it's challenging. It just yeah, I mean, it is. having been yeah. on the it's very challenging on the landlord side right now for a number of reasons. But in terms of delivering good experience to the employees of their tenants, um, 
it's still a bit of a black box. And, you know, I remember this from working at RXR, which is a big landlord here in the New York area. Um, when I wanted to start doing research, the process to get access to employees was I talked to the leasing team, the leasing team then talked to the broker uh, that was representing the tenant way back when they did the deal. Then it was talking to likely, you know, someone who was a CFO or someone in finance who was responsible for signing that lease. And then it was maybe getting in touch with that, the leader of HR or the COO or something like that. So it's a very convoluted process that doesn't necessarily have any yield because every tenant has the right to be like, no, I don't want you to know anything about my employees. Um, and that's part of, sometimes that's part of their agreement with their employees. So landlords in this context, it's, it's a very uphill battle. I think that it will get easier over time once occupiers have a better handle on what it even means for them. It's hard for everyone because we're still trying to define what that means post COVID. And a lot of the people who are in charge of these things for the longest time have thought food programming and really beautifully designed spaces and parties were, could cut the mustard and that would be enough to keep people happy. But, you know, the workforce has just, we as a collective have changed so much through the past three and a half years that we're, you know, this is, you know, <laughs> apples and zebras, basically. Like there's just, there's too much change to account for. And we're still trying to figure out what to do with that Delta of what kind of employee base we were in January of 2020 versus what kind of employee base we are today. So all of this will work itself out more. I think occupiers, occupiers have it easier because they have access to the end users and they can ask these questions. And my best advice is continue to ask questions. Just because you got an answer in November of 2022 doesn't mean that it's the same answer today in May of 2023. So keeping up that consistent conversation uh, is really critical. Um, one of my favorites, uh, one of the favorite case studies I have from the past couple of years is Genentech. Uh, a friend of mine runs the real estate and workplace team there. And when they opened up the, the campus in uh, South San Francisco to their sales, marketing, and their operational teams, because the lab teams basically continued doing what they were doing through the pandemic, they created an employee agreement that said, we, you know, we're doing our best, but we don't actually, we don't fully know what the answers are yet. You are our, you're part of our testing. So if you're signing on to come back to the office, because at that point it was still flexible, if you're signing on to come back to the office, you're also signing on for an hour conversation, an hour conversation interview every month to tell us what your experience has been, what's been working and what hasn't. And over time, at scale, we'll be able to have a composite of things that make more sense than uh, than what we have today. So they did a really great job of creating that co-creative relationship with their employees, uh, which set the expectation for nothing is perfect. Uh, this is not finished and it's not going to be finished without your feedback. So that was one of my favorite case studies. And it's one that is relatively easy to implement. The answers you find, depending on what company, what region, what industry you're in, are all going to are all going to be very different.
but the approach is pretty unilateral. And that's the part that I think is the most telling um, of just everyone benefits from hearing from their employees in a constructive way. Anyone who's run focus groups knows that there's usually one person who shows up with like a two, like a, a two page printed out wish list of like, they want bean bags and sit stand tables and all this kind of stuff. Framing it in what do you need in order to like, what do you need to accomplish the work that you do and really contextualizing it of, it doesn't matter what you, it doesn't necessarily matter what you like. It matters what you need. And it, you know, the two are not necessarily mutually exclusive. So there's still a lot of benefit to be had. Landlords, there's landlords have a longer tail. Yeah. I, look, I think that Gentech uh, case study is uh, fascinating. And I'm curious um, uh, how the response was of uh, employees to be asked questions on a, on a monthly basis. I know that there are plenty of employees that aren't always thrilled about uh, divulging information, uh, even to their employer. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm just curious if there was any feedback on that. Not, I, not that I know specifically, but I think again, because it was tailored so much to, we're not going to, we're not trying to pry into you, but we want to hear your reactions and your feedback. So again, like positioning it, positioning it in a way of, we want the same thing. We want things to be as good as they can. Tell us what, tell us what you're able in order to make that happen. So I, I think being really explicit about what kind of feedback you're asking for, how it's going to be used and how it can, how it can and will inform future changes does, I think, ease employees uh, jitters about why they're getting interviewed in the first place. Um, But again, that employee, that employee agreement that everyone needed to sign uh, stated it clearly of, you know, this isn't meant to be tracking you. This is, this is, we have a collective goal and it, it can't happen without you. So the one thing I wanted to double back on uh, is you mentioned need yeah. versus want or wish list based questions. And would you say that's the key format in terms of uh, question asking uh, in the post pandemic world? I, for now, yes. I think because wants are so individual and can lead us down a lot of different rabbit holes. Uh, there are, I tend to use Maslow's hierarchy <laughs> just as a, a logic comparative of a lot of how we talk about employee experience and workplace experience is very much at the tippy top of the pyramid when there's still a lot of stuff that's down more at the bottom of the pyramid that will get us really, it will get us good wins. It's kind of one of those things of, um, well, I've actually been doing some research on like the remembering brain versus the experiencing brain. Uh, your experiencing brain is really instantaneous. So a lot of what we are designing for experience is actually the remembering of experience and your remembering brain tends to skew negative and remember, and the negative things that you experience tend to have the volume turned up louder than the good ones. So we need to skew towards what are the things that cause friction? What are the things that get in people's way? And while they might not be as visible or as glossy and sexy, 
they're the things that are actually going to break down the log jams and, you know, clear the traffic and let the, and let work uh, flow. So I think it's really positioning things around that practical tactical mentality first, and then being able to say, now that we've achieved, you know, a really solid platform of, you know, operational effectiveness, now we can start thinking into what's the, you know, what's the Venn diagram of things that people want or things that people have preferences for. And then that's where you can get into, is it Taco Tuesday or is it, you know, is it, you know, burrito, burrito Thursday or something like that? Like it gets, you can get more into the, uh, the nice to haves once you have that solid foundation of the things that should work, work. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I know you, you talked a lot about remembering it and certainly we're going to remember this interview. It was great thus far, but we're getting to our final four. And, uh, these are our final four questions that we ask everyone. Um, but we get really unique answers based on the, uh, the guest. And so I'm curious, um, based on our first question, where do you see real estate going 10 years from now? Um, well, real estate is still going to be around. Uh, <laughs> it's not it's really going anywhere. You know, death taxes in real estate, but it, it's going to change. It is it, our needs have completely changed. Um, I think we're going to start to see cities really like change quite dramatically. Uh, San Francisco, I think, is probably the best test case. Um, what's been interesting is with all the migration of tech folks. There's been a, a resurgence of artists return to, returning to the city and it being a much more, you know, under the radar creative haven. So where else in where else in the states and where else around the world is that opportunity going to arise? Um, I think you know, for me in New York, you know, thinking about central business districts like Midtown, are those sustainable long term, or do we need to start thinking about how each neighborhood or each uh, section of our city needs to be self-reliant. Um, and so, you know, all of those things that change in terms of creating live work neighborhoods rather than just exclusively CBDs and work neighborhoods. Um, I'm really, I'm really hopeful to see what happens there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it'll still be around, <laughs> just very different. <laughs> So, so in terms of that, I'm going to follow up on, on different in the workplace itself. Where do you, what do you see being the most different thing about the workplace? Yeah, I think the, how they're designed or like the, the allocation of different types of spaces are already changing quite dramatically. I think we're going to start to see fewer and fewer assigned desks. I think we're going to see more uh more just sort of hotel hoteling kind of desks but not in team neighborhoods i think we're going to see a lot of activity based working which for folks who aren't familiar is it's kind of like how your house is arranged you sleep in your bedroom you make food in your kitchen you eat in your dining room and you watch tv in your living room so think about that on the scale of you have meetings in meeting rooms you do focus work in the library or the study space you, you know, you catch up with your mentor in the, in the, the cafe, things like that. So I think we're going to start to see much more of those kinds of unassigned and shared workplaces. 
that really just focus on people being together um, and obviously still satisfying the needs for folks who have young kids at home or elder parents at home or just don't live in a place where focusing is a conducive activity at home. So I think that's I think that's the main change that we're going to see is just the the flip flopping of desks overpowering how a workplace is designed to be with more collaborative and soft seating arrangements. Look, uh, that that's a great forecast. Um, I'll be curious, and I'm sure you will be as well, to see how how uh, the world adjusts. Um, but at this point in the interview, we're going to take a step back from the future, and so uh, great. if if you were sitting there and and Young high school, uh, Corin um, is is looking at what she wants to do in the world. What would be your uh, your tidbit of advice? Um, well, I get I have the lucky privilege of I studied at a liberal arts uni- uh, college in at Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania, and I studied religious philosophy and. There's a long, long answer for how that connects to what I do. But at the end of the day, people and culture are everywhere. And that's no, no exception for work. Um, I would say, follow the humanities, follow the people, um, especially in today's world with where AI is becoming more and more prominent. And a lot of those, that type of work is very technical and not uh, it's very technical. That's, I don't even know, uh, I don't have enough of the words to really describe the difference, but I think really focusing on humanity and things that can improve the social fabric of everything, including work like this, is what I do, I count as part of humanities, uh, just it's in a business context. Um, I would say focus on those things because those are the things that one are needed most desperately. I think we've we've really over-indexed on how important STEM has been over the past 10 and 15 years. Um, re- we really need to be starting to consider where does liberal arts and where does humanities fit in? Because that's where storytelling comes in. That's where contextualizing information comes in. Very, you know, very similar to how I was talking about the quant and qual differences. I think that there's a really big there's a big need for the human element. Hey, I uh, couldn't agree more. I'm a uh, humanities undergrad as well uh, before law school. And uh, I would say I rely heavily <laughs> on some of the critical thinking that I learned back then. Um, and and, and soft skills are particularly in the real estate field, but in the business field are very undervalued for what they actually produce. Absolutely. So in terms Absolutely. of reaching out and learning a little bit more outside of you know, going to college. Um, if if I were to recommend a, a couple books to our um, our listeners, is there a book or two that has really mm-hmm. influenced you from the real estate or business perspective? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, well, what's been interesting is I've been rereading Atomic Habits and thinking about how not just how that affects me as an individual, but even thinking about how that informs or even validates change management approaches that I've used in the past or things that I would do differently in the future because of his research around habit development and things like that. Um, You know, if you talk to anyone who does change management, the typical scope is 
somewhere around three to six months. And while like the most, the average person can adopt to change and internalize change in that time range, there are also, there's a huge cohort of people that it can take up to nine months for change to really set in. So uh, it, it really, that's a book that's really made me reconsider how we approach these things. And if there are ways to, you know, honor the, you know, the long tail of these things, because it does affect how companies can succeed. Um, and then I'm going to peek at my bookshelf and see if anything pops out. <laughs> um, I would, you know what, uh, I would say blitzscaling is another one that really has shaped how I think about things. Uh, but not in, not in this, <laughs> not in the way that they intended because, uh, how blitz, blitz, uh, blitz scaling talks about the growth of a business. So growth of like a product or an idea. Um, but because it's not their expertise, what they miss is how much operational infrastructure needs to be built in as you scale. And it was a book that was really revered at WeWork, you know, which we were not blitz scaling. You can't blitz scale a physical product, but that's beside the point. Um, <laughs> that's just goes to show what was going on there. Um, but in general there, and this is symptomatic of, I think a lot of the tech industry, probably most other industries as well, but because there was just so much scaling so fast in that industry. It's, it's just more obvious. Um, a lot of, a lot of folks who are founders or just in that position think that, well, if the, if the product scales, we scale, but there's no, there's no way to sort of check in and say, okay, we've went, you know, in this past year, we've gone from a hundred employees to 500 employees. The way that you operate is not the same. And so there's a lot of taking those operational aspects for granted of like, yeah, they'll work until they don't and things crash and burn quite dramatically. And it's hard to build back from that. So for me, it's a really important book to read, but it is kind of, it has a shadow that isn't really articulated. Look, uh, I, I love Atomic Habits and I'm going to have to check out Blitzscaling. Um, in terms of, yeah. The most important question on the podcast. Uh, the whole reason for the podcast is to find insightful individuals in real estate. And one of the best ways to do so is actually ask individuals in real estate. So, uh, Corinne, can you give me an mm -hmm. example or even a few of someone that we should reach out to uh, for the next couple podcasts? I think you should absolutely talk to Denise Browder. She is founder of Sway Workplace. Uh, she doesn't even come from the real estate world, but she's created a programmatic and systematized way to help companies move from wherever they are into a hybrid dynamic. And so she, she and her team help people move from point A to point B. They have all the materials, they have all the onboardings and trainings and things like that. And they've just created a really effective product that helps people, you know, get the 360 understanding of what needs to be done and sees hybrid as a business choice, not a real estate choice, uh, which I think is a really important distinction uh, that real estate supports. Um, 
And so she's really great about uh, that articulation. And then who are some others that I think you should chat with? I would say Sarah Escobar from okay. All right. Games. Uh, she and I are actually co-writing a. Uh, she and I are co-writing a book uh, at present. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm a big fan of hers. And uh, she, so she prior to prior to Riot, she was independent with her own company. And but she's been working in tech and entertainment, real estate, and workplace for years. She's worked at Hulu. She's worked at Netflix. So she's been all all around the block in the a- well, LA those area. are those are some very interesting workplace cultures uh we have a uh some uh a client of ours that is in the similar uh world and uh their workplace is always interesting so um in in terms of the last question we ask and this is probably the second most important question uh corin how's the best place um to get in touch with you if somebody listened to the podcast today and they want to get more insight on workplace workplace culture uh, the evolution of the workplace. How do they uh, reach out to you? Yeah. Uh, so LinkedIn, I'm relatively active on, uh, but you can find my website at agate.studio. So A-G-A-T-E dot studio. Uh, you can just shoot me a note there and it'll go straight to my inbox. So yeah, those are my two main places right now. And then when I get lucky to be on podcasts <laughs> well, like this. Thank you so much for hopping on today. I think we really got a lot of value out of it. And uh, we hope to have you on in the future. Thanks again to Corinne. We appreciate her insights. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, five-star rating, or a view. Your comments, interactions, and subscriptions truly matter and help us continue to provide quality guests. You can follow us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.